Today on Pens Exchange, a state building in early Mexico, the process of achieving functional governance after conquest. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Emily Sellars. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Yale University. Previously, she taught at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University and at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Emily received her bachelor's degree at Cornell and her PhD in political science and agricultural and applied economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research interests are at the intersection of political economy and development economics. Welcome, Emily. Thanks, Fernando. Thanks for inviting me. So the, the year 2021 marks the 500th anniversary of the fall of the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan by the hands of Hernán Cortés and his European and native allies. It marks the beginning of a new society of which we now call Mexico. But how did it happen? How did the Spanish transcended from mere conquerors to state builders? Achieving functional governments has always been problematic, and it is a subject of interest to social scientists, historians, and also modern policymakers. Governing is an a temporal human problem. How did the Spanish build their state? Emily is here to talk to us about it. So, Emily, we are Tenochtitlan 521. The Aztec city has fallen and now is in control of the Spaniards and their allies. What happened afterwards? Could you provide a little bit of background context? Could you tell us a little bit about this fascinating setting? Absolutely. It is a really, um, truly fascinating and, and dramatic setting to study questions about state building, conquest, um, and sort of historical persistence and interruption, actually, um, in a lot of ways. So what happens directly after the fall of, of Tenochtitlan? I think there's a couple of, you know, there's sort of two ways to answer that question. What happens directly after, which is, of course, the sacking of the city of Tenochtitlan burning. But then, you know, shortly after, there's sort of this effort um, to, to try to, um, you know, eventually it's the, the expansion of, of Spanish colonial power throughout the Americas kind of, uh, kind of had started a little bit in the Caribbean and expands from, from uh, during the conquest of central Mexico. So essentially what, what the um, government inherits, I guess, at, at, the, at the dawn of the, of the colonial era is a group of uh, conquistadores, so you know, um, essentially military men, warlords. Uh, the first sort of one of the first actions that, that happens in, uh, upon the, the collapse of, the, um, of the, uh, the, uh, the Aztec Empire is that they you know, begin to divide the areas of that are, had been under uh, the Mexica rule into encomiendas, and so essentially granting the right of, um, of the sort of encomenderos to extract tribute and labor from, from the conquered population. And so this becomes uh, sort of one element of the tool of, of consolidating power in the Americas, which has a lot of nice features, I guess, and, and also some dangerous ones from the perspective of the Spanish crown. So of course, if you think of the, the governance problem from Spain, you know, there's not this, it's not sort of a centralized army that's conquering territory in the Americas. Essentially, it's sort of a freelance set of conquistadores. Uh, this sort of um, institutional design of, of this, uh, of the encomienda allows them to 
allows the, the Spanish government to kind of uh, exert control over a wide range of territory without necessarily having to construct an administrative bureaucracy right away, without having to um, sort of bring uh, the, the people directly under the rule of, of um, government agents of the state directly. Essentially, what they do is they kind of co-opt existing institutions that were there prior to the, prior to the conquest, use these to sort of build this uh, decentralized network of encomiendas, and then use this to kind of exert power across the empire. Um, but it's a messy process, I should say. And, and um, one thing that I'll, I'll sort of caveat is that, you know, in some ways what I'm talking about is these really broad strokes of history. Of course, there's a lot of messiness in how this process gets played out as well. Yeah, I mean, there are different angles upon you. We can, you can touch this problem. First is, of course, that the natives were not or unified, there were several people. And the second is the conquistadors themselves that were not united. So I would like to ask you, how cohesive was the expeditionary Spanish force that conquered Mexico? And I want to ask that because if you look the comparison case of Peru, what you look in Peru, what happened in Peru is basically after the Pizarro and allies conquered the Inca Empire, a Spanish civil war happened there. So why didn't that happen in Mexico? How did Cortes kind of pacify not only the natives, but also his own conquering force? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's kind of two ways to get into that um, to, to 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 get to that question. So one is, um, you know, why was there no civil war that broke out in in central Mexico after the conquest? Um, there's of course a lot of conflict within the Spanish during the conquest of Mexico. Famously, of course, you know, Cortez during the entire conquest is kind of being chased by the governor of Cuba, Narvaez, and um, this you know this conflict this, um, that that erupts. There's of course low level bureaucratic um, bureaucratic I would say conflicts between encomenderos in the central Mexico about, you know, which cabecera owes tribute to whom and so on, but there's no civil war. And so where, where, where does that, why no civil war after the, um, after the conquest? Well, I think there's sort of a couple answers. One is that of course, encomenderos are kind of brought into the, um, are brought into the empire, uh, um, uh, but through this institution of the encomienda, the other, of course, is that the conquest continues for a while after uh, the fall of Tenochtitlan, both northward and southward. So Cortez himself doesn't stay in the Valle de Mexico for very long. He, of course, goes um, uh, leaves his original encomienda that he's, he's granted in central Mexico to go southward into Soconusco, it becomes Guatemala, it becomes uh, Honduras. Uh, other conquistadors, of course, go northward. Eventually, for the conquest of the, um, you know, the, during the Mistone War, the conquest of the Tarascan Empire, um, later excursions uh, even beyond there. And so, uh, I would say there's a combination of sort of co-opted into uh, into the um, uh, ruling uh, coalition through the granting of the tribute and labor from the Comienda, but also sort of the expansion of of people's horizons beyond the Valle de Mexico, which sort of led a lot of the big conquistadores don't actually stay there to, to um, fight over the spoils for a long period of time. Basically, then what happened is that the profit potentiality of future conquest allowed the unification of the Spanish forces, that they had to be unified in order to keep conquering, right? Yeah, I think that I think that's a huge role. I think there's a kind of interesting, you know, this is getting to the Peru um, comparison that you bring up. You know, I guess there's a thought experiment. What would have happened if that Chile expedition had gone a little better? Um, would they have come? You know, would there have been this return to to Peru with this fighting over the spoils of the um, of Cusco and the Inca Empire? Uh, that's a that's a question, I guess. Now, previously, you talk about well, this being conquistadores, freelancers. There were not a governmental expeditionary force sent by the by by the Spanish kings. In fact, 
actually Cortés disobeyed some rules by his superior. So how did Cortés and the conquistadores actually kind of legitimize his conquest, not only in the eyes of the natives, but in the eyes of his own Spanish government? Yeah, I think there's always this ambivalent relationship between Cortés and, and the crown, right? Of course, uh, as you say, the uh, in some ways, the, the entire conquest is derived from Cortés explicitly disobeying the rule of the governor of, um, of Cuba. Um, throughout the entire, you know, even, even after the conquest, there's always this fighting between, you know, Cortés and the crown, most notably, of course, you know, the first... Um, you know, the first uh, sort of royal decree to, to outlaw encomienda comes really quickly after the conquest in like 1523, and Cortes just doesn't obey. He'd already sort of exploited the encomienda. Um, so, um, you know, how does this, I think in, there's, on the other hand, though, uh, this, he becomes a really useful tool, obviously, the, the conquistadores become a useful tool for exerting Spanish power. And so, um, you know, there is this celebration of Cortes in his, in his domain after the fact in Spain. Um, there's this, uh, you know, he, he gets this huge grant of, you know, the Marquesado in, in, in central Mexico. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the strange sort of way in which the, you know, the, the conquistadores are private actors, but they also uh, sort of derive their, their legitimacy from being affiliated with the Spanish crown. And this is kind of part of the way that this conquest worked is essentially outsourced or freelanced. Um, it wasn't sort of centrally controlled in the same way that you might think of in other cases. So you have mentioned encomienda system, but what is it really? I mean, how how could you define this in political terms today? Yes, that's a that's a good question. So um, it's this uh, institution that was inherited from uh, earlier periods of conquest in in Spanish history. So in particular, the the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, uh, and then the conquest of the Canary Islands, and then, of course, the Antilles and the Americas prior to the conquest of Mexico. Essentially, it's a, an institution that grants the right to extract indigenous tribute and labor to uh, a private individual in exchange for pacifying the population, converting the population to Christianity, and administering, um, I guess you could say, the, the population. So um, became this uh, the sort of intermediary, I guess, that would uh, allow these um, diverse far from the far from Madrid, uh, difficult to govern areas is a way of kind of folding them in to the empire in a really kind of, um, I guess, superficial at first way, but in the same time, a way in which um, they, you know, they are in, indirectly paying tribute to the to the to the crown in this way. So um, I think most people think of the encomienda prim primarily, I guess, in social sciences today is a kind of um, uh, as a, an institution of labor coercion, primarily, or sort of uh, labor allocation, which it certainly was. Um, in the work I've been doing with Francisco Garfias of UCSD, we've kind of been focusing on the element of it as a sort of an institution of indirect rule. So essentially, um, you know, uh, the sort of institution that enabled the crown to kind of delegate important governance uh, responsibilities and authorities to local notables in exchange for uh, local pacification, um, local administration. And so um, rather than create a centralized bureaucracy with tax agents and so on, they kind of can delegate the, the, the um, tasks of the population, collecting taxes and so on to these local notables. So could you illustrate those kind of an example? So let, let's say that I'm a conquistador under Cortés. I conquered Mexico. So I deserve kind of a spoils of war. So Cortés 
gives me some land, I guess, some indigenous population that inhabits that land basically pays me tribute. And then out of that tribute, I basically I'm in charge of that land and I am the owner. So that that will be a correct conception of what the encomenda system is? I think it kind of evolves a bit over time. And one of the interesting things about central Mexico is like it, at the at the beginning, it was essentially the way the encomiendas were assigned were on the basis of pre-existing political orientations in particular, like there's a cacique who has a bunch of towns under his control. The encomienda is given sort of the level of that political unit, cabecera usually, but, um, but often several cabeceras or, or um, uh, sort of large towns that have several um, uh, subordinate towns that, that they administer. Um, the connection with land is interesting because at, the, at least at the onset, there wasn't sort of a, um, it was less of, it was more of a, a, a person level uh, allocation than a land level allocation. So it'd be like, okay, I, the, the ownership, or it wasn't even directly ownership, but the right was to extract labor and tribute from a people. Um, later on, it's sort of only in the second half of the, or the you know, second part of the 16th century that the um, sort of connection to land becomes a lot more explicit and the connection to um, the transition from exploiting labor and tribute kind of uh, spills over into a um, into the uh, sort of the rise of the latifundia that that um, Jennifer Alex Garcia and I talk about in some of our in some of our work but uh, the basic you know to, to give kind of an example of what this might look like is um, you know think about the central Mexico uh, cases right so right around the area around what's now Mexico City so some of these encomiendas go to conquistadores that basically again the spoils of war like you say some go to indigenous notables so notably the daughters of Cortez you know get their encomienda as well to get kind of uh, part of the, the empire what they what they are assigned is essentially um, at the level of the cacique or um, uh, sort of local notable, and uh, there's some fighting over you know who's owed what, but that's kind of the first the first set of encomiendas. One thing that you mentioned is about the daughters of Cortes receiving encomiendas. So one thing that is neglected in the literature and in general in the general public is that not only the Spaniards conquered Mexico, other indigenous populations conquered yes. Mexico. So Tlaxcala is famously because he's a state right now, so the Tlaxcaltecs were the main allies. Do you see any encomenderos being kind of indigenous? Like they also are being paid for the services? Yeah, I should, I should clarify. I meant, I meant to say the daughters of Montezuma. So they, they are definitely explicitly encomenderos who are indigenous. Um, of course, the, um, the I think it's I think it's fair to say that the conquest of Mexico could not have happened without the support um, of indigenous allies, most notably perhaps the Tlaxcaltecas, who not only are partners with the Spanish during the conquest of central Mexico, but then eventually become kind of a useful force for um, you know, being dispatched to the north to fight the Mistone War. Um, even in present day, you know, like northern part of Mexico or north central Mexico and the Colotlan region of Jalisco, which I've studied in other work, you know, there's a lot of, of settlements trace themselves to being like Tlaxcaltecs that have been transferred from the, from the center area. Um, the, you know, some other of these, you know, there's also with, even within the Triple Alliance, I guess, the, the, um, the city states that make the heart of the, the Mexica the Aztec Empire. Uh, there's cleavages that that the Spanish exploit during the conquest as well. Most notably, the the secession crisis in Texcoco, I guess, that people have been writing about. Um, Hassig and um, and you know recent work by Matthew Restall. One thing that has always amazed me is how when you look into Central America, just by looking to their names, they are Nahuatl names, when basically most of Central America is Mayan, which speaks of basically 
that it was the native uh, Central Americans that conquered Mexico, the ones that also conquered Central America. So do you see kind of a migration from those guys into Central America, not only to the north, but also to Central America? Yeah, I mean, I know, I know less about that, that area, but absolutely the, when, when uh, there's sort of this regrouping of Cortez, Alvarado et al. to go conquer uh, Soconusco and then eventually Guatemala, they of course bring indigenous allies with them from, from the center as well. Um, so yes, uh, I think you're right. It gets lost a lot in um, the way we tell the history and the you know sort of myth making around Cortez or around you know some of the um, I guess more dramatic ways of reading the um, the the conquest. But absolutely, indigenous allies were were crucial um, and had their own reasons, of course, for for resisting the uh, for resisting the. Um, the rule of of the the Triple Alliance or Aztec Empire, uh, in some ways, the cleavages that were created through Aztec rule ended up becoming really important for for um, the uh, the the post conquest, uh, the pre and during and post conquest um, political arrangements of Central Mexico. The encomienda system then is a tool of the government to basically rule indirectly because it lacks the state capacity to do so directly. Do you see any regional differences? Because I guess one of the most important aspects of, of this mechanism is its potential to adapt to local circumstances, and that, that's why it works. So do you see difference between, let's say, the Aztec, what was the Aztec Empire compared to the North, compared to the South, or even compared to other parts of, of America, I would say that you started explaining us that the Comienda system was born out of the experience of the Iberian Reconquista and the con conquest of the Canary Islands. I would guess that the Encomienda system there was kind of different. Absolutely. I think, um, so uh, the sort of, I guess you could say the classic or the way we think of the canonical Mexican Encomienda of the central area looks a lot different than the encomienda as it's talked about in, you know, the Northwest, like Nuevo Santander, where there wasn't sort of a sedentary population that could be exploited in the same way, had a very different, um, the crown and the elites uh, and the masses had a very different relationship with one another than they did in central Mexico. Um, the same can be true. I mean, much of Mexico too, there, there are parts of what's now um, Mexico, what was then New Spain that really didn't have uh, a settled population prior to the conquest of indigenous people. And so, Institutions that were adopted there look somewhat different. They didn't have the encomiendas that existed, I would say, in, in central Mexico. So, of course, it's adapted to local conditions. Um, sort of classically, it's, you know, it's taking advantage of um, pre-Columbian institutions that, you know, within indigenous communities. Also, kind of this um, superimposed uh, order by this local notable or elite. At the first, they're conquistadores, and later, sort of other, other elites as well become encomenderos. Um, and it is a useful tool for the for the government, but it also is, of course, costly, which is one of the things that um, I think is kind of interesting about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would like to talk about that. So we've speak we have talked about the the usefulness of the encomienda system to govern, but what are the limits of of the system? What yeah, are the costs so I of think, it? I mean, the again, the crown has a pretty ambivalent relationship with encomienda right from the get go. So on other on one hand, I think it clearly enables. Uh, the government, the, the central, the central ruler, let's say the crown, to extend authority over a much broader area than they would have had to, that they've been able to if they'd had to have sort of centralized control right from the get-go. But at the same time, it has these sort of negative consequences that become costly um, for the crown. And and one of the negative consequences that's pretty clear is that, you know, by granting the right to extract labor and tribute to these notables. Uh, the, the the crown is essentially foregoing a lot of revenue and control that it might be able to enjoy under a more centralized uh, system. So 
there's sort of two things that they, I guess, um, you know, were, uh, I guess, perhaps even three. So, you know, one of the the claims that was made uh, about why the, the crown wanted to curtail the encomendero, the encomienda, um, and, and in turn curtail the power of encomenderos, I guess, was because of the exploitation of the indigenous uh, peoples. So, of course, they had just had, at the time of the conquest of, of Mexico, they had already sort of destroyed um, several islands in the Antilles, you know, really decimated the Taino population. And that was uh, sort of considered to be, um, in addition to, you know, immoral from the perspective of, of, you know, some religious leaders also extremely costly. So there's sort of a, a need to curtail extraction. Uh, there's a need to curtail um, or to, to increase uh, revenue and control by the central government. Um, and so uh, the the encomienda, of course, uh, is delegating a lot of authority to encomenderos and, and therefore is also giving them a lot of rights to, to extract uh, in ways that aren't necessarily going to the central government. Um, and sort of a third thing is that, you know, per se, I think the, the issue of control looms large. And so one of the things that's, I think, pervasive is this fear that the encomenderos are going to become this powerful feudal class that are going to be able to resist crown authority um, and, uh, and, you know, perhaps rebel against the crown. And in fact, that does happen in, in for example, uh, Peru, again, around the time of the adoption of the new laws, there is this massive uh, rebellion of encomenderos, which threatens crown control over the, um, over the territory. And so uh, these are all things that, you know, the, the encomienda was useful, but it was also sort of empowering this class of elites that I think the crown uh, sort of understood was going to be a political threat and an economic uh, threat going forward. This is like the classical economic problem of the earlier states before you have to control you have to give privileges to them but if you want to build your own state you have to basically curtail those privileges and that's kind of the in and out of, of the fighting between the king or the government and, and the regional elites right absolutely i think this is like a common problem of state building actually is that you know essentially you need elites to be part of your order you actually need to depend on elites in some ways to extend your political authority which is certainly what happened in, in the conquest of mexico um, but there's, uh, again, this, uh, if you allow these, uh, intermediaries to become too powerful, you lose control and you're also foregoing revenue during this whole time. You're giving yeah. a lot of privileges that, that is in some sense, uh, lost revenue for the crown. Um, and that was considered to be a problem. Historically speaking, when could you say that the Spanish empire transcended from an encomienda system to a more direct system, if at all, if it happened? Yeah, I think it depended a lot on space. And so in central Mexico, already by the mid, I would say, 16th century, mid to late 16th century, there's this movement away from the encomienda and toward more centralized control under the corregimiento system, uh, where you have a direct agent of the state, salaried official, given a year-to-year -year contract generally, um, with um, sort of a staff that is in charge of, of administering the empire. And um, you know, they're paid by the, the sort of salaried rather than getting a share of rents, much more control uh, uh, by the central government. So that happens relatively quickly in central Mexico. It happens a lot more slowly in, uh, in other parts of the empire. So, for example, in the Yucatan, the encomienda lasts for a really long time, um, in part because it's such a difficult problem of conquest over, over this population. The, the Mayan confederations are... Um, uh, you know, put up a lot of resistance to, to Spanish rule. And so, you know, in some ways, because of that, there's sort of a, um, a, a longer term reliance on these, um, on the encomienda in these areas. Um, other parts of the empire, uh, again, it kind of just depends. There, there's sort of areas where the um, encomienda kind of disappears within a generation of the conquest and areas where it lasts for the entire duration of colonial rule, 300 years. 
One fascinating thing about this period, I mean, in general about history that I, I always like to emphasize is the lack of a smooth uh, political borders. I've always fascinated by the overlapping of political jurisdictions. I mean, modern people cannot comprehend how life in the state was in the past. Like today we have the federal state and county levels and we pay taxes to one and maybe to another, but it's a defined border between both. But in the past, you, you do not see that. And in, in Spain, you do not see that either. So how would you define the Spanish political system? Mostly also in relation to the idea that we're talking about a pre-modern state, which basically its role was not the, the one that we see today. They do not build roads. They do not have a, a social system. Basically, they just engage in war. So what were what? how did the Spanish system rule its empire? Yeah, so I think there's a couple, um, there's a few interesting things about the way that the Spanish ruled their empire. So one we've kind of already been talking about, which is that there's... Um, a uh, pretty constant reliance on on local uh, elites or power holders to, as a way of administering. They you know simply don't have the presence uh, of a centralized bureaucracy in the Americas that can really be controlled directly from Madrid. And so there's always this um, even even after the the transition to um, to the Corregimiento, there's a sort of long term reliance on uh, on local elites, private actors to keep order, which is something that. Um, of course, Francisco and I have looked at in our in our work. Another is um, is sort of these strange sort of overlapping uh, jurisdictions. So there's uh, political jurisdictions that are kind of ill-defined. So one, of course, is this. Um, there's sort of civil ecclesiastical jurisdictions. There's also so private jurisdictions. I guess you could say the encomienda, for example, is a private holding um, that have sort of place different demands on people and also engender conflicts within the colonial government that are really important. And so. Um, recently, I've been reading a little bit about the um, sort of factors leading to the uh, 1680 rebellion of the Pueblo and peoples in, in what's now New Mexico. And one of the things that's really fascinating about that um, period is just the way that um, sort of indigenous elites and, and people were able to exploit conflicts within the Spanish government between ecclesiastical and civil authorities about, you know, how labor should be allocated, how tribute should be allocated. Um, you know, the, these were not small scale debates. I mean, several governors of of, um, of New Mexico are, you know, hauled in front of the Inquisition in Mexico City. So there are big stakes here. Um, but yes, there's a lot of sort of overlapping jurisdictions. It's not sort of a clear one to one mapping between uh, sort of a territory. There's not like a, you know, welcome to um, territory X sign that you can cross <laughs> on the road on the way to, to somewhere. It's a much more, um, I would say, uh, yeah, it's like a sort of a... Uh, lighter, I guess, uh, territorial uh, form of, of, uh, of government um, compared to like the modern state. Um, and that's what's kind of interesting, I think, about, um, about Spanish colonial rule in particular in Mexico is there's this sort of evolution that happens over time of, you know, centralization, decentralization, um, sort of how you balance the power of elites versus masses versus the religious authorities and so on. And it's constant um, negotiation. It's not that there's sort of this uh, I think one of the things that happens with um, you know, uh, the way we talk about the conquest is we think, okay, there's this conquest and then colonial power is implemented. That's not at all what happened for the entire 300 years. It's constantly being renegotiated, um, you know, centralized and then sort of decentralized and recentralized, and then sort of the power of different actors, uh, political and social, change a lot over time. When we talk about Latin America and Mexico in particular, we always compare it basically to what happened in North America. So what what allowed the U.S. and also Canada uh, to basically build a, a effective state compared to 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 the Spanish 
provinces or the Spanish nations. So do you see any structural difference or is this just kind of a random occurrence of the last 200 years? Yeah, no, I think um, there are, of course, uh, differences. And, you know, I want to be you know, I, I want to be cautious in making sort of too straight, straight a line from early colonial history all the way to the present. But yeah. um, the reality is, you know, what's the territory of what's now the United States was um, was administered by, you know, was, of course, part of several different colonial empires. You know, the British, of course, uh, colonized much of where, where I am, Connecticut, New England. Um, but of course, much of about a third of the country was under not only Spanish rule, but also Mexican rule after after 1821. Um, then the Spanish, of course, uh, the French, of course, um, colonized a lot of the center part of the of the country. Um, and so it has a sort of different political history than Mexico, which had been, you know, the heart of colonial order in the Americas, essentially, especially central Mexico. Um, and that kind of enables sort of different um, different uh sort of evolution of post-colonial government to, to emerge. And that's something that a lot of scholars of, of North America have, have discussed is, you know, the way in which, uh, for example, um, British uh, colonization kind of had different goals. It was later than Spanish colonization that had um, implications for the way it, the way it looked. At the time of the U.S. independence, I guess Philadelphia was the largest city, but it was not—it was not that close with what Mexico City was at that point. So, at that point, would you say that Mexico City was more like a centralized government, more like a real government compared to America? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess so. It gets the, the I'm trying to think about like the timing here, right? So, if you think of independence here, you know, at least the Declaration of Independence, 1776, but you know, really, it's not until the end of the war in 1790s that the U.S. really gets, um, and, and after the um, Constitution, that really the the um, post post revolution uh, political order begins to take shape. At that time, Mexico is, of course, still part of the Spanish Empire, and that's during the sort of key period of Bourbon state building, which is sort of a period of centralization of power. Um, it's a period where um, where uh, we, um, uh, you know, we see sort of improvements in administration, improvements in tax capacity, and so on. Um, one of the things that, um, of course, um, Francisco and I look at some of our work is the way in which that eventually backfired and kind of led to a dis sort of a uh, disintegration of order rather than to centralization. But certainly, if you look at the exact time of independence, you know, at that time, of course, Mexico is still part of the Spanish Empire, still has this, um, is still kind of part of this centralization um, project of the of the bourbon uh, monarchs um and and uh and that ends up being um being what happens all the way to the end of the colonial period after the after the war of independence you know there's sort of a long period of total political disorder in mexico as you know so it's sort of the 19th century is kind of a um a period where there's just sort of a, a disintegration of power and then it takes a long time for power to reconsolidate yeah so would you say that 19th century kind of Devolved the state building capacity of the Mexican government. Yeah, well, I'd say it certainly created something different. I think you know there's a lot of work about you know what what is inherited or not from the colonial period, but you know I see like a lot of I see it as kind of a continuation of these episodes of decentralization and and recentralization and um, or sort of disintegration of order. So you can think about the conquest. You have this um, sort of extension of indirect rule. The centralization, and you know, one of the things I looked at in my work is, you know, when the government was able to centralize and when it wasn't in the early part of the um, of the 16th century, in the mid part of the 16th century. Um, then you have sort of a period of um, sort of lessening of centralized control in the sort of century of depression, the 17th century, the 18th century more control, 19th century maybe less, and then toward the end of the 19th century, of course, with the Porfirian era, there's sort of a, a movement toward 
political stability and, and restate building. So um, you could put these kind of on a, you know, it's, it's less that there's sort of a straight line from one, one um, transition to another, but there are these sort of recurrent periods of centralization, decentralization, political order, political disorder. I think that you could, that you could uh, put them in a line in some ways. Looking this into a more general perspective, would you say, would you, could you tell kind of a lesson out of the Mexican historical setting? What is the lesson for a state that wants to centralize, that wants to basically consolidate itself? How does a state does that? I mean, we are currently in the news, the, the failure of Afghanistan and those things. So that's a, basically a top-down failure by the U.S. government to build a, a, a functioning state in Afghanistan. So what do we need to build a state? Yeah, I think that the, the Mexican lesson, um, the Mexican experience, I guess, we now call it Mexico, of course, um, uh, has a lot of lessons for that. So one is about this um, sort of key relationship between uh, political order and centralization and the way in which centralization can actually uh, be inversely related with order in some ways, or at least inversely related in, in the resilience to, to shocks. And so I guess there's sort of two ways you can look at that. One is looking at the um, uh, the sort of centralization of authority and what enabled that to happen in some areas, not others. In Mexico, of course, there's, um, there's uh, this is something that I've looked at in some of my work with uh, Francisco, is that there was uh, the series of epidemics that kind of provided an opening to seize power from these uh, local authorities during times when the threat of rebellion from below was going to be weak. And so there's this inverse relationship between the ability to centralize and then the threat of domestic conflict. You can see the flip side of that in um, at the sort of the periods of centralization. And here's where there may be some lessons from, I'm not an Afghanistan expert, but there may be some lessons there, is in some ways what happened, you can read the Bourbon era as maybe being a parable of over-centralization. So essentially what happens is the government, um, for, for good reason, wants to get revenue to fight wars in Europe. They want to get more control over authorities um, in the periphery. And essentially what they do is have a bunch of these centralization efforts to uh, improve administration, improve tax capacity, get rid of some of these privatized tax arrangements and, you know, and sort of replace them with more formal direct control by the crown. Um, all of these things in some ways do work to build a state in the sense of revenue per capita goes up um, by most measures, administration improves. Um, but because they come at the expense of a lot of these local authorities on the periphery, they kind of weaken their buy-in in the, in, into the colonial rule. And so later, when they kind of need to count on these individuals during a crisis, um, so uh, in, in central, uh, in, in New Spain, really, the, a key feature of, of um, the way that power was maintained in the empire was that there was uh, the, that local elites, merchants, miners, and so on would often fund militias to put down rebellion when they occurred. So uh, this centralization process that came at the expense of these individuals uh, sort of facilitated a, a breakdown of, of order when they kind of got um, uh, sort of more disaffected with the crown and sort of then weren't, couldn't be counted on during a crisis. And so I guess, uh, I guess there's sort of a, a lesson here, a broader lesson here about potentially the, um, the tension between centralization and domestic conflict that perhaps has some, some relevance. Certainly you can think about, um, and again, not an Afghanistan expert, but it's sort of interesting to me that the, the collapse of, of, the, um, of the state and the, the reimposition of, of Taliban rule wasn't done. It wasn't sort of this long periodic conflict. It was a lot of sort of buy-in of, of local authorities that kind of uh, switched sides that allowed them to kind of um, extend or reconstruct the state quickly. And so that seems to have at least a, you know, from my experience or, or from some of the research we've done in Mexico, there's sort of a parallel there. 
Well, thank you very much for being here, Emily. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Well, anything else that you would like to add? No, just um, thank you for thank you for having me, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing more of the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. The process of establishing a functional state is neither simple nor easy, and it can never be fully achieved in a top-down manner by disregarding the interests and the context of the population that it aims to govern. In the long run, states are always the result of endogenous efforts put by the population that supports it. Historical episodes may highlight the violent beginnings of current states, but they also help us recognize the inherent complexities in jump-starting one. The building of the Mexican state was achieved by successful political maneuvering by Cortés, allying himself with key indigenous societies by recreating the previous pre-Hispanic political context. Maybe there is a lesson to be learned about it. Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Penn underscore Exchange. Stay tuned and see you next time.